0: write a sort of satire of this kind of thinking in which a person gets, just gets entirely too literal.
1: Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Last week, I ended the podcast talking about a website that you have created, a web page that you created, Mr. Gradgrind's Literal Answers to Rhetorical Questions. I want to go ahead and record the podcast this week about that.
0: Okay. Yeah, this is a a little project I did for fun back in 97 and uh, really haven't touched it since. Um, But it has some interesting history. The first thing to explain is the name, Gradgrind, is a character by Charles Dickens in Hard Times. And he is a very literal-minded taskmaster of students. And uh, the most famous quotation from him is, Now what I want is facts. Teach these boys and girls nothing but facts. Facts is capitalized, by the way. Facts alone are wanted in life. Plant nothing else and root out everything else. You can only form the minds of reasoning animals upon facts. Nothing else will ever be of any service to them. This is the principle on which I bring up my own children, and this is the principle on which I bring up these children. That was the students of the school. Stick to facts,
1: sir. And Gradgrind is one of those great uh, Dickens character names. He's always—he's never very subtle, is he?
0: No. He's
1: <laughs> <It's> very <laughs> literal.
0: But the, one interesting thing about that quotation, is somebody notes on this website where I'm reading it, is that isn't it interesting that even when giving these instructions, Gradgrind can't help but speak metaphorically. <laughs> um, because he says, plant nothing else, root out everything else.
1: Exactly right, yeah. Everybody uses metaphors, everybody uses rhetorical questions, even Mr. Gradgrind.
0: Right. So my original concept was not Gradgrind at all. Um, I have a long-standing interest in science. It goes back when I was a young teenager, especially astronomy, but um, I'm interested in a wide variety of the sciences. And uh, generally have a strong sympathy with the scientific method and logical thought and rationalism and all that. Um, I'm also a science fiction and fantasy reader. I was a big fan of science fiction starting in the seventh grade and later got into a lot of fantastic books. I grew up on the Oz books. Um, and I became a literature professor. So uh, clearly creative writing, the imagination, I also taught about music and art, philosophy. I had a lot of uh, different interests and it sometimes surprises people to find out that I'm also very, very interested in science. This led to my being asked to teach a science fiction class and I taught it off and on uh, about 40 years In the last couple of times, I actually taught science fiction film class, which was a lot of fun, although it was a lot of work, too. And the science fiction classes would attract uh, different kinds of students. And some of the students were looking to fiction as an escape. And to them, fantasy, science fiction pretty much overlapped. Um, And as long as it was fantastic enough, that was enough to please them. But there were also some people who, say, were engineering majors, physics majors, uh, people in the sciences generally, who were really interested in the science part of science fiction. Actually, most science fiction has very little science in it. And some of the most um, popular science fiction, like 2001 and Space Odyssey, which uh, does a beautiful job of rendering uh, orbital mechanics, and and showing you a way that a a real spaceship would maneuver as opposed to the totally fake way they do in Star Wars, uh, nevertheless has this heavy mystical aside to it, uh, increased by Kubrick, who sort of suppressed uh, the uh, ideas that were in the book that accompanied by Arthur C. Clarke. Um, He had a notion of what these aliens are up to, namely uh, forcing nuclear disarmament on the human race that just got subtracted from the movie, and you're left wondering at the end of the movie, what's this naked baby floating in the sky about? (laughs) Um, What he's doing is detonating or destroying all the nuclear weapons on Earth so that we're not a threat to the galaxy anymore. Well, anyway... So you have these, these two tensions in science fiction. One toward the fantastic and the imaginary, the sense of wonder, as people talk about. It. And on the other hand, uh, trying to derive a narrative from something that extrapolates from what we currently know about science and what could plausibly be the case in the future. And so classic, hard science fiction is all about plausibility. The problem is that if you are doing this kind of writing, you're bound to say things that just are not going to be very plausible, um, no matter how hard you try. The, the latest example of that would be the film The Martian, which I loved. It's great. and. Um, my wife, who usually does not like science fiction, I persuaded to go see it. And she was very reluctant. And at the end of the movie, she stood up and applauded and shouted out, everybody should clap. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it, for the story of a person being marooned on Mars. It's extremely uplifting and entertaining and warm hearted. And it's, it's, uh, it really shouldn't be missed. The only thing that bothered me a little in the reviews that I saw, which were generally quite positive, was that some, somebody referred to it as being a sort of Robinson Crusoe story. Well, they didn't refer to the old movie Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which is sort of a cult classic. It's really a terrible movie, I think. But it has the same basic plot, a man trying to survive on Mars, But um, one of the things about that movie that bothers me, uh, to give you an example of unscientific behavior, is he's recording on a little portable recorder his experiences so that uh, if he's ever found or if his remains are found, they'll know what happened. And so he speaks into this microphone. Well, he has no oxygen there except puts this one small tank that he's using. And, of course, we know that the atmosphere on Mars is extremely thin and unbreathable, cannot sustain human life. But he flips up his face shield so he can speak into this mic all the time. And, and he does, when he does that, he talks about how short of oxygen he is and how desperate his condition is, but he's got his face mask up. So, which makes no sense whatsoever. Well, anyway, the, the thing about The Martian, the most recent film, is that uh, the author of the original book went to some lengths to try to make it as plausible as possible but with one howling exception which is that the atmosphere of mars is very very thin and it could never pick up a heavy antenna or a person and fling them across the desert so the whole premise that that makes the movie happen just is not at all plausible which should be reassuring for those people sure. who think they might yeah. want to go to Mars someday they do have wind but it's it's pretty mm-hmm. feeble compared to mm-hmm. earthbound wind so i would get students in my class who would sometimes say well th- this story was not good because the kind of star that the planet orbits around is not the kind that could sustain life on it. So that it just spoiled the story for me, and I couldn't enjoy it. Um, or you would get, you know, other similar comments, which I would think, well, give, it, give the guy a break, okay? The, especially if it's an incidental point in a story. It's not the, the premise of the story that's unscientific. Um, fantasy in science, and there's even a, a whole genre called science fantasy, where you mix up together things like witchcraft and dragons with science. Um, and so I, I was just sort of amused by this more than anything else. I didn't criticize these students to their face, but I thought I'd write a sort of satire of this kind of thinking in which a person gets, just gets entirely too literal about things. So um, I was imagining a character, a grumpy character like this, and uh, that reminded me of Mr. Gradgrind. Um, so I went looking for grumpy looking people on the web and, and found a picture of Daniel Webster in a top hat scowling. Um, and I thought, boy, yes, he looks just like Mr. Gradgrind. So that he's Mr. Gradgrind on my page. And so here's, here's what I wrote. Now this is included on my website under humor and miscellany. You can click the link uh, on the podcast page to get to it. Um, Well, I got uh, contacted by Scott Simon of National Public Radio several years ago, and he had stumbled on this and thought it was really funny. And so we set up an an interview, and uh, it was was a challenging interview because uh, I was at our local campus radio station, which had never done this kind of thing before, and their engineer couldn't figure out how to get him recorded in the same feed with me, and so I was chatting with him back and forth a little bit once in a while as um, they were wrestling around. He was very patient. He waited for about a half hour, and we began talking about other things that I'd done, and I mentioned common errors in English usage. And he sounded interested, and I said, how would you like to interview me about that? I'd much rather have that go out on NPR than Mr. Gradgrind. And he said, well, send me a copy. Um, And I wound up doing that, and he eventually supplied a blurb for the back of the book, um, which is one of my favorites. So uh, what Scott Simon said is, I'd call Paul Bryan's book incredible, fabulous, or fantastic Except thanks to him, I now know that none of these words are what I really mean. Let's just say that Common Errors in English Usage is the most cheerfully useful book I've read since the Kama Sutra. (laughs) Perfect. My publisher was actually a little nervous about putting that quotation on there, thinking that some people who are picky about English might be picky about references to the Kama Sutra too, but I'm glad it made it in there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, we've all calmed down about the Kama Sutra in the last thousands of years.
0: Okay, so here's Mr. Grabgrind. This is an introduction. People commonly ask empty rhetorical questions that rarely receive any sort of sensible answer. When you have had your surfeit of poetical whimsy and are ready for some good hard facts, come here to be set straight. The world would be much improved if those engaging in windy musings were more often brought up short by a nice, sharp definition or a pointed rebuke. Even the fantastical William Shakespeare asking himself, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? goes on, admittedly, at excessive length, to list a number of reasons for answering in the negative. Of course, some questions are so ill-framed as to admit of no sensible answer. Example. Where have you been all my life? It so happens that this question has never been addressed to me, but if it were, I should be at a loss to detail the many addresses at which I have resided and worked during the span of existence of some other person, even if I knew that person's precise date of birth. Such idle musings are best ignored. However, one can learn much by discovering facts that provide satisfactory answers to questions one might suppose at first glance to be pointless. This page is devoted to the pursuit of such
1: answers. Well, Paul, you sound like you are firmly in the character of Mr. Gradgrind, and so I'd like to ask you a question. Okay. What is so rare as a day in June?
0: June having 30 days, it is clear that days in April, September, and November are precisely as rare, or as common, though they are slightly less common than days in January, March, May, July, August, October, and December. Days in February are the least common, of course, so it is nonsensical to consider June days as particularly
1: rare. Uh, Paul, or should I say Mr. Gradgrind, right. um, where are the snows of yesteryear? If the question refers to the
0: melted product of last winter's snowfall, the answer can sometimes be derived by analyzing the volume of water in the catch basins of dams located on streams downhill from the point of original snowfall. More precise measures may be taken of those snows that contribute to glaciers, which move at regular rates ranging from a few centimeters to a hundred meters per year. The easiest place to locate such snow, however, is in the extreme Arctic and Antarctic regions where, although snow is very rare and sparse, it remains satisfactorily frozen and fixed in place indefinitely.
1: I thought that might be the answer. Uh, Mr. Gradgrind, how high the moon...
0: It varies between 356,000 and 407,000 kilometers in distance from the surface of the Earth, its average distance being 384,400 kilometers.
1: Just the answer I was looking for. I have another question for you. What shall we do with the drunken sailor?
0: D. Kolb and E.K.E. Gunderson's study Alcoholism in the United States Navy reports that attempts to prevent, diagnose, and rehabilitate sailors suffering from alcohol-related problems are to a measurable degree superior to the older approach of simple hospitalization, published in Armed Forces and Society, Volume 3, number 2, pages 183
1: to 194. Aha. Uh, here's one. Who wrote the Book of Love?
0: René of Anjou, King of Naples, 1435 to 1480, wrote and illustrated his book of love, Le Cœur d'amour a y sometime after 1473, while living idly in Provence.
1: So that's what the song was trying to get at. Huh. Uh, Could you tell me why the ivy twines?
0: Not all ivies do twine, of course. Some are mere creeping vines. However, climbing ivies, such as are commonly seen covering academic buildings, maximize their exposure to light by using twirling tendrils to affix themselves to other plants and objects in order to gain altitude and escape their shade.
1: Well, here's another question for you that I heard in another song. Would you like to swing on a star? There has been a
0: good deal of research into the use of long tethers linking space probes, which could use the gravitational differential between linked units closer to and farther from a massive object to generate both electrical and kinetic energy. C. L. Johnson, B. Gilchrist, R. D. Estes, and E. Lorenzini, Advances in Space Research, Volume 24, Number 4, pages 1055 to 1063, 1999. However, Problems of scale and temperature make it unlikely that this technique will be applied to interstellar navigation any time in the near future, so you would be wise to limit your wishes to swinging from a planet. I see. That actually happens in the Martian, by the way.
1: Aha, uh-huh. yeah. Would you be able to tell me how long has this been going on?
0: Data from the Wilkinson, Microwave and probe produce an estimated age for the universe of 13.7 billion years, plus or minus a 1% margin of error.
1: What is to be done?
0: I find that the Filofax A5 system organizer efficiently tracks my appointments with a minimum of fuss and is generally superior to the personal information management software product so widely touted by computer enthusiasts. Hmm.
1: And um, what's up, Doc?
0: Presuming that the doctor addressed is a physician, one must assume that the question refers to the identity of the topmost parts of the human body, in which case the short answer is the frontal lobe of the brain, the skull, the scalp, and, if any, the hair.
1: Uh Aha, okay. Uh, This one uh, came to me. I, I was trying to think of how you might keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris.
0: Administered commodity prices resulting in an average profit per farmer of no more than $50,000 per annum should be adequate to discourage profligate trips to France.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And who's afraid of Virginia Woolf?
0: No one well-informed, of course, since the writer in question died in 1941. But during her lifetime, she was known to have a sharp tongue, and many persons had reason to fear her wit.
1: Uh, There was another song that asked a question, a perplexing question, that I've never been able to satisfactorily answer. Where have all the flowers gone?
0: Generally, the petals of the flowering parts of plants wither and fall to decay in the surrounding soil, while the remainder is converted into fruiting bodies. However, the blossoms of early flowering fruit trees, such as plums and cherries, are particularly subject to the destructive effects of spring
1: rains. And finally... How do I love thee? Let me count the ways.
0: Though the poet neglects to enumerate them, providing instead a mere list, a simple inventory establishes that, if we omit the purely hypothetical, posthumous final one, Elizabeth Barrett loved Robert Browning in precisely seven ways.
1: Of course. (laughs) Of course she did.
0: So... (laughs) After I put this together, and I actually did research to find these sources. If you follow up on those sources I cite, you'll find them out there. And I ran it all past a geolog- <laughs> geologist friend of mine who was baffled of why I would be writing this thing. Um, and then people began to write me suggestions. Um somebody who's really picky would look at the title and say, well, not all of these are rhetorical questions. Mm. Uh, they're simply questions that have can have a uh, an amusing factual answer, and that's what it was all about. So usually people would send me these questions, which either were not rhetorical questions at all, or for which there was no amusing answer. So I never added to the list, and I've never come up with a, another good one, and I don't any need to. I think it's, it's perfect right the way it is.
1: Oh, I think it's great. <laughs> well, thank you, Paul, for sharing Mr. Gradgrind. Is there anything else to say about Mr. Gradgrind?
0: Um, no, except that I was just looking at the counter here, and this page has been accessed today. By 286,853 people, or at least that's the number of times it's been accessed. So it's gotten a good deal of readership over the years.
1: Well, asking how many people have visited a website is not a rhetorical question. (laughs) It's generally pretty precisely answered, isn't it?
0: Yeah, except unfortunately, uh, how many people have visited my Common Heirs in English website has become sort of a baffling question because the counter that I used on there seems to have stopped working. But it's somewhere around 13 million.
1: Well, Well, we'll have to summon Mr. Gradgrind for that one someday. All right. Thank you, Paul.
0: So long, Tom.
1: That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.